Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. Uh, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with David Polite at Carlton Hill Wine Company. It's uh, June 18th, 2019. Thanks so much for joining us today, David. We appreciate this. Uh, start you off by asking, uh, why wine? Uh, why wine? Well, I suppose it may have started from the very uh, early, um, early on when I was a, a history student at Reed College. Uh, a hero of mine was Thomas Jefferson. And he, to me, was the ideal of a role model in the sense that he was a farmer, uh, a statesman, a lawyer, and he was also fond of his the finer things of life, and, and wine was mm-hmm. one of them. He was a remarkable innovator, as, as you well know, and uh, he, he had a lifestyle anyway that I kind of emulated, and so Somehow, in, in a very unworthy way, I've managed to do part of it. <laughs> uh, and I discovered um, when I went to read that uh, Oregon, without having a fortune, would allow you to actually pursue some of these dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, New York City, where I had you know, live for a time, you'd need a helicopter or a plane just to get to your vineyard, and even then it would be probably marginal. Mm-hmm. Um, here you have the, a, a valid metropolitan city mm-hmm. where you can conduct a, a, a practice, in that case, a law practice, and still be an hour's drive from countryside like this. Mm-hmm. And, and um, finally, I suppose what what drove me is that while I certainly wasn't uh, drinking the fine uh, Burgundies, Pinot Noir was probably my favorite grape, favorite wine drinking grape. Mm-hmm. And so Oregon had all those elements. And so um, <laughs> it was a funny coincidence. Um, a dear friend who's passed away from cancer, my first plantings dedicated to her, uh, Phoebe calls me and I'm in New York City and having a grand old time, playing hard, <laughs> working hard. I was at the SEC and uh, she says, you know, this property's come up. You have to come out, fly up and look at it. And you always wanted to do this. And she and I had visited back in the day, 19, probably 76, although I'm not very good with time. Three-dimensional sense of time's gone. <laughs> um, <clears throat> We'd gone out to Dick Ponzi's place, and that kind of put, for better or worse, or fatefully, the seed in my head to do this. Mm-hmm. He was at the time literally had 25 barrels in a shed. Mm-hmm. You know, of course now he's you know has a gorgeous big winery and is one of the bigger players in the game. But um, going out there for little concerts on his lawn and. Um, so that put the seed in my head, and she said, there's a property that's come up. She'd just gotten into real estate, had, didn't know what the hell she was doing out here. <laughs> she was in Portland. Mm-hmm. And, and I think I was still hung over from that night from being at the Mud Club in New York. I don't know what. But I said, okay, I'll come out. All right. Yes, I remember those days when I wanted to do this. Mm-hmm. And uh, flew out. And... Um, I wasn't exactly impressed. I think that day there were buses, Volkswagen buses floating down the river, cows upside down in fields, you know, because it's just raining like hell. And I'm going, why do I want to come back here? <laughs> uh, but uh, we got in the car, drove around, and we're lost for two hours, and then finally get to this little road you came, just recently came up, Cummins Road, and it looked like a more like a wagon road, you know, with (laughs) ruts and creepy trees all over it. And um, went down the driveway, it was a rainy, foggy day, but this home here, uh, they had taken photographs of it, and I thought it looked like it was from the 50s and was sort of sketchy. Saw it come out of the fog, and there I saw it was a a four-square farmhouse from the turn of the century on top of a hill in Oregon. Mm -hmm. And I'd say it was 
20 seconds and I knew it was my home. And I never looked at another piece of property. Uh, and uh, so that's sort of the beginning. <laughs> wow. uh, and it, uh, it was a, um, it was an odd feeling, but I, I just knew it was right. And I had some people come out, <clears throat> which leads to another part of the story. How you like all these questions getting asked? It's perfect. It's exactly, how, it's exactly how I want to do this. Anyway, I had had somebody come out and look at the property, and they said, you know, Dave, this is a B, maybe B, B minus site, and we think you can grow grapes on it. And so I said, okay, that sounds like a start. <laughs> um, but I really, you know, when I saw this, I, I just, that sort of overtook me, so I took the plunge. And, um, and the reason at the time that they were saying that it was the land itself, it was an old orchard. This was all once part of a 650-acre uh, plum farm, plum operation, which they in turn would roast and turn into prunes for export. And this gentleman was the king of the valley who owned this home, which started to make sense to me because a lot of Yam Hill County was dirt poor, and he was uh, the guy on the hill, kind of, and he ended up being the banker for a lot of other farmers, in fact. But uh, it was run down. So this was not a vineyard, it was not established. Um, it was very rough, old orchard that uh, was event I eventually had to remove. Um, but anyway, back to the site, part of it, the conventional wisdom when I purchased this property um, was that you had to have south and southwestern facing slopes. Uh, elevations were being explored. We certainly, the, the valley land was not desirable because it's too fertile for grapes. Grapes will grow for miles if you give them enough of nutrients. Mm -hmm. You need to beat them back, um, but in any event. The, uh, so given that, that's why they didn't think the site would necessarily be, you know, in the top tier. Mm -hmm. And then, when I arrived to Oregon, within a year's time, I was got involved with a project in 1990. Well, you weren't born yet. <laughs> 1993 or four, to try to restore something that used to be out here called the Carlton Lake. It was a wonderful wildlife area, sanctuary, that people would fish in it. And it turns out that David Lett himself, our godfather, um, used to fish in that lake. And so I got to meet him, and he joined our, our ranks to try to support a fundraiser to restore the dam and do the lake again. Funny story is EPA ruled against this. That's nice. Um, anyway, so at that time, I kind of... Um, had an opportunity to, after our fundraiser or something, say, yeah, you know, I bought this land, thinking about growing grapes. And, um, he said, first thing, he looked right at me. He said, what's the aspect? It was a little bit of a commotion. Good guy, though. I mean, he said, what's the aspect? I said, uh, screaming, you know, reaching in my mind, because I still don't know what the hell I'm doing. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, eastern. Eastern face. Yeah, I know we get those cold fronts. I mean, he said, probably not going to be able to ripen any grapes there. And that was a really good day. <laughs> <laughs> I went home with my tail between my legs and just looked at this disaster of a farm and said, well, I am clearly the spinthrift son in the group. What an idiot. Um, and so that was sort of the humble beginnings. I certainly... Um, uh, wasn't encouraging, but uh, in light, nonetheless, I befriended somebody who uh, was early on in the vineyard management world, mm -hmm. John Gilpin, mm -hmm. and he and I together built, planted a small patch, which is now called Phoebe's Block, mm -hmm. and uh, she's the one I mentioned earlier who passed from cancer, mm -hmm. and uh, that was our first planting to see if indeed you could ripen grapes on an eastern face. Mm -hmm. 
and we discovered very much so. And if anything, I've become a, a real disciple of that, uh, that aspect. Mm -hmm. so. And that's uh, sort of plunked me here. And that's, you know, it's been a, a work in progress ever since. Sure, of course. <laughs> so let's talk about you getting here. And you said you, you made some friends in the industry. Uh, you, you had clearly the passion and the desire to do this, but you didn't have a lot of practical knowledge. So how did you go about learning? Well, the I had this many credits <laughs> in college. Uh, I really, yeah, didn't exactly uh, have my agricultural background. <laughs> my dad was, uh, ex you know, no, yeah, no, 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 no uh, background whatsoever in agriculture. Um, so I uh, had developed a fondness for wine, um, and in particular, I like Burgundy when I could get a hold of it. But um, I, I went to Chemeketa, mm -hmm. and I did some uh, both some enology and viticulture courses there. And frankly, in, in the, at least the early days, now Oregon State's on board, but, you know, politics being what they were, uh, that was one of the best uh, schools actually in the state. Mm -hmm. um, our land-grant college was a little behind the eight ball <laughs> when I was here. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, Patty Skinkus is there, and they're, they're doing great, and mm -hmm. they're doing some serious research. It's all good. But um, at the time, the, I think the school may have been run by grain and cattle folks. Anyway, um, so, the, you know, just, just self-education mm -hmm. as well. And I, um, if I have anything, I've trained as a lawyer. I am a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And so um, I listen and I watch other people. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to be on the cutting edge of the first trend on anything. Um, and there were experiments that were done. I'm really kind of happy that I purchased my land as I said in 91. I didn't plant my first grapes to 96. And the first commercial planting, if you want to call it that, three acres, um, didn't go in until 1999. And so um, in that time, the industry turned on its head. Mm -hmm. I mean, every, every aspect of the industry, whether it be uh, fine choice, rootstock, uh, clone, uh, the canopy design, uh, row spacing, spacing between plants, everything turned on its ear. Mm -hmm. The first vineyards here were 8 by 12, or, you know, 7 to 8 feet between each plant and 12-foot rows, you know, mm -hmm. to accommodate large equipment. And, and that all changed, and suddenly there was this radical departure to a 3 by 6 meter which is, you know, basically three by six, you know, it's tiny. And that's what I did my first planting in, because that was the trend. I wanted to see what that was about. And um, I ended up making some changes to that as well. Uh, to me, it's too dense and it's tough because we do have disease pressure. And so that's my own opinion. So I made my rows little, three four by seven. And it, it accommodates more conventional equipment. Mm -hmm. And yet you still get plenty of grapes. You know, the density is there. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, everything changed. So uh, I'm glad I held up. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I've made any real, I don't think I've made a mistake as a result of being a little patient, not mm -hmm. jumping in, you know, all at once. Sure. Maybe it was the reason for, a good reason for not having dumb money. So how did you decide what you wanted to plant? Uh, I relied on, on others. I did my Oregon grape growing guide, you know. Um, it was based in, I did some, some barrel tasting, but I can't say that was exactly it. I just, uh, I knit the rootstock, there were really two choices for me, so that was easier. <laughs> And I went with something called 3309 um, for three quarters of the vineyard. Uh, and and I, the fir my first four, five acres worth of fruit were bought locally. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, all my plants, uh, my grass, or my, yeah, my plants are, are, have been purchased from Oregon growers. Mm -hmm. So, and I did that in part, wasn't, didn't use Duarte. Um, 
in part because I thought they'd be more customer accommodated to this environment. Mm -hmm. And I and I so far so good. Um, <clears throat> and then the again I like this land the. The blind hog gets the acorn once in a while. I lucked out to a degree. I think I picked two of really, really wonderful clones. Mm -hmm. that I, my first playing was 115 mm -hmm. and 777, so they're both in the Dijon camp. Mm -hmm. And uh, they make a wonderful blend. And I think a lot of winemaking, while you, people do do <coughs> single clone releases for sure, I haven't, uh, other than my 115, I've not had a burning <coughs> desire to do that. And so I really like the blend. So with 777, I was getting some uh, deeper notes and or, uh, darker fruits. And the 777 was giving me more lofty, higher red fruit and, 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 and uh, a little higher notes on the nose. And mm -hmm. So it's a great blend. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and I'd, I'd tasted wines that were using those clones, but it was largely because people were basically saying, hey, these are working out nicely here. Mm -hmm. I did not initially go with the tried and true Pomard and, and Vadenville. However, being a brilliant businessman that I am, I went and planted four and a half to five acres of, again, a combination of, of Vadenville and Pomard right in the teeth of the recession. That was really, really smart move. And, uh, you know, because there was all kinds of go, go, go lights going on. Um, but the only good thing about that was I got the steel at the same price I did in, in 2000. Because <laughs> you could, you know, I mean, even China was came to a grinding halt in the Great Recession. So there were benefits to some of that. Um, but now I have four clones. So, uh, and the pomard is starting to impress me. It's taken 10, 11 years. They're, they're in their 10th leaf, 11th leaf. Anyway, notches on the belt. <laughs> How would you describe your grape growing philosophy? What is it you want your grapes to do? I really very much, I'm a, uh, although that's getting overused and I probably don't qualify, but I'm pretty much in the natural camp. Um, I do, well, at least on the winemaking side. Grape growing, it's all about stewardship, um, and I am a farmer first and winemaker second. By no means am I in the top tier of winemakers in the state, but what I have is a vineyard that's in the top two to three percent. I'm, I'm convinced of it. And that's for the record. Um, it's, it's an amazing site, and with Pinot Noir, his site is huge. I think you guys as students know, should know that, starting to learn that. And, um, and then you combine that uh, we have uh, all sedimentary soils up here, in contrast to the Dundee area, which has more volcanic soils. There are some sites, apparently, in RAVA that do have volcanic soils, but it's primarily old ocean bed. Mm -hmm. And there's even a little bit of salinity in the, in the you can detect from time to time in the wines. <laughs> but um, I am essentially organic, as far as growing. Um, and I am part of the old school. Uh, I drop fruit pretty religiously. <laughs> And then one of the wines we're going to taste today, it, 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 it has bailed me out on any number of occasions. Uh, when people were trying to get to four tons and think they could ripen it, and then a year, like 2013, comes along, and they have piles of garbage on their hands. Mm -hmm. um, and then we can get into that. But uh, the, So I uh, do shoot positioning, and we do... Uh, the, the nice thing about, to get a little bit more back into those eastern faces, I have, uh, I only pull leaves and a little later than some on my east side. Um, but one of the things, so we pull leaves and we do shoot positioning and all of that's really important mm -hmm. in our spray regimen. And I don't, other than when I was using literally a jalopy, for a sprayer, I've never had a bit of disease in this vineyard, and even in 13, I had maybe a two to three percent incidence of botrytis, and it's largely because I get the eastern sun in the morning, 
and it dries my vineyard out. Hmm. It's just been some of the reasons why I like this aspect. Um, that helps you with disease pressure. And then my slope isn't so sleep, steep that I can get north-south row orientation. Gives me a nice balance of sunlight on both sides of my canopy. Hmm. And then the real beauty of the eastern site is that when it's 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night, my vineyard goes into shade and it cooled, starts to cool off. Now, if it's 100 degrees, it's still 100 degrees, but at least there's no direct sunlight on them. Mm -hmm. And um, our hot part of the day is six in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. I explain that to visitors. I mean, most people come from places where the hot part of the day is two in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. Here, it just keeps going up. Uh, I've been on that back porch and it's just insane at eight o'clock <laughs> at night. Um, so that all goes to, again, um, you know, Pinot Noir being a thin-skinned grape. Mm -hmm. So while it needs heat, and it's best when it can just slowly ripen, and 15 and 16 and 14 haven't been exactly friends to us in that regard, just because they're so hot, um, it's uh, the vineyard itself helps me be a better farmer, too. Mm -hmm. Um, because I don't, I only probably spray six or seven times in the course of a season. A lot of people are spraying 10 and 12 or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mainly have organic products. Uh, every now and then I'll do a, a synthetic spray, but this year on my map or my plan, I will be using all uh, organic sprays. And again, we, that thing means sulfur. You guys are students. Are you doing the vineyard side of things still? Okay. Anyway. Uh, we use oils, stylet oils, and, and um, sulfur. Mm -hmm. and, uh, there are a couple of now organically registered fungicides, which is what we use to combat powdery mildew. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, uh, farming is what it's all about, and site is really, really important in mm -hmm. producing uh, at least the kind of wines I like to make. And uh, this site is hands me, and all I have to do is not screw it up. <laughs> so let's talk about that. Then you talk about your grape growing philosophy. Let's talk about what you do with the winemaking side. Then besides just not screwing it up. Well, I've, again, uh, I you know I've I've had a lot of help. I make my wines at Walnut City Wine Works, and the head winemaker there is Michael Lundeen. And so the benefit I have there is that at the, my youthful age of 64, I don't have to be climbing up barrel racks three and four high, topping off barrels. They take care of a lot of the detail. Um, I get to do all the fun stuff. Uh, I get to choose my wood. I get to make my blends. I get to, you know, obviously I control pick dates and, you know, what percentage of blocks I'm going to use for my own tea um, and then you know and as it is I find that there are people that are doing well the whole the whole thing have their own winery I just have made a decision I don't want to do brick and mortar uh, it's a tough business mm -hmm. even if you have all the wines for instance you're going to taste today the lowest score was 90 points. Mm -hmm. Still, it's a tough business, mm -hmm. and you got it. You know, so I find I'm busy enough. So, and I don't necessarily, while I'm considering planting some Chardonnay, I don't necessarily want to grow anymore. Mm -hmm. I got plenty on my hands, and uh, my wines tend to be for that those one percenters, mm -hmm. which we all love and cherish in America, uh, but. You know, it's a higher-end wine, and that's all I offer. So there are lots of wineries that have their Willamette blend or whatever they're doing, mm -hmm. and they can move tractor-trailer loads of it, and that's not my case. Um, so you know, I'm in the. F I keep my production between three and five hundred cases. I have an estate and a re state reserve wine. Uh, as far as the wine philosophy, it's uh, again I very much with my estate wines, I want you to taste the vintage, come good or bad. Now with this vineyard, I haven't had a bad. 
Their 11, I will say, was the biggest risk I ever took. But as you got through it, indigenously fermented, um, I didn't think we were even going to have grapes in 11. But this, I do to, to allow the consumer or whatever, the wine buyer, to enjoy the vintage or have, see the vintage, I keep the regimen in the winery mm -hmm. the same every year. Mm -hmm. Try to be as consistent as possible. I avoid the use of, I do not use enzymes. Um, I do my concentrating in the field and then I drop fruit. I typically target between two and two and a half tons the acre. And we also, at Walnut City, we have the benefit of a giant refrigerator where we are able to take our fruit in right from the field after we either destem it or do whole cluster. And we stick it in this refrigerator and it gets to have about a four or five day Hmm. Cold soak, a natural cold soak, not one with dry ice, sure. which is, you know, you can do, it's all fine, but it's nice. It's a very nice feature. And that is a method for extraction, hmm. a way to pull a little bit more flavors from skins. So I get the benefit of that. Hmm. And, uh, but otherwise, I don't want the winemaker, I don't, the last thing I want is for, and it's, again, a terrible business decision on my part couldn't be worse and there are a lot of people I respect more so than myself that are saying you're an idiot but I want to retain the vintage distinctions mm -hmm. uh, I if somebody comes through the store they're not going to get a Big Mac it's not going to taste the same from one vintage to the next vintage to the next vintage now not that Oregon wines are like that but there's there are certainly producers that well, just the pH, you know, to make sure it's almost ready to go as soon as it's bottled. And my wines couldn't be more different than that. And when somebody comes waltzing in and said, hey, I'd love to have another 09. Is he got one just like that? And I'll sit there and say, absolutely not. No, nope, they're all different. And they all have characteristics of their given vintage. And um, it works most of the time because every vintage has a story and every vintage has been stellar as far as I'm concerned, but they're all different. <laughs> and that would be, a, uh, I would say, a part of my wine philosophy mm -hmm. is to let the vintage do the talking. Mm -hmm. And then as much as possible, and I will make adjustments. I like a wine with a higher acidity. Um, pH levels I try to target. I mean, it's not over the top, but I mean, between, let's say, 3, 4, and 3, 6, and it makes it more age-worthy and it makes more food-driven. Mm -hmm. uh, food wines, uh, are, that's what I make here. Mm -hmm. And uh, Pinot Noir, if done right, is the greatest food wine in the world. My humble opinion, again. <laughs> is there a particular, since you're so vintage-dependent, is there a particular kind of vintage that you would prefer? You talked about a slower, a cooler season means they ripen slower. Is that what you're hoping yeah, for? Uh, yeah, you are, absolutely. Like in 14, we came, I think, this close. At least, I, you know, I have to look over my notes. I have half Eheimers now. So that means I only remember half the things uh, that I used to. Um, but 14, and you're, this, this business really dates you. But in 14, we were, I think, this close to a vintage of the century. We had medium to small clusters. Mm -hmm. We had smaller barriers, which berries, which usually translates to greater extraction because uh, there's more, you know, kind of skins to pulp ratio, whatever. And um, but August, you know, again, we've been having these Augusts that are just, you know, like California Augusts, and they are. Uh, you know, so they speed up the ripening time. Mm -hmm. And they, what happens is the sugars start to spike on you. And you don't want to have, the other thing I'd say I try to avoid is high alcohol Pinot Noirs. Uh, sometimes you just can't do it. My, my 15s, hottest year on record, yeah, they're over 14%. Um, but but uh, the, that, you know, that's, the process of, of a nice slow maturation is, is a good one. We kind of had it in eight, and in 14, it was nearly there. Mm -hmm. um, so I always hope for a not-so-blazing-hot August, mm -hmm. I guess. I, this site, though, I'm picking, I pick a little earlier than my peers, at least I used to, 
because this eastern face that wasn't going to ripen grapes actually ripens grapes very quickly. <laughs> but again, I think a lot of it has to do with the bowl that it's in and the heat it retains and the, uh, all kinds of elements that uh, allow this site to, to thrive from a fruit production point of view. But um, uh, what, was I, what was I saying there? Um, anyway, the, the, the fruit... Um, I lost my train of thought. Oh well. What was I saying? It was something. Just the, the anyway, the ripening and the slowness of the ripening is is, is ideal. Mm -hmm. You know, the slower the better. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's what why people located here in Oregon, from a historical point of view, because it was cooler, mm -hmm. and it was a challenge to get ripened. And it, like one of my favorite vintages is actually 2011, mm -hmm. the year we didn't have bloom completed until the first two, three days of July. And then technically you're supposed to have 110 days thereafter to, to get fruit, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I was telling anybody, listen to me, I said, we're not getting fruit this year. But uh, by some miracle, October stayed dry. It's not like you can get a lot of ripening done in October when it's dark at four. But, you know, at least stay dry. Mm -hmm. And uh, we picked three days for Halloween. I think that I would, I certainly lean towards the cooler years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. Um, and again, I had, I did something that nobody did, I don't think, in 11, because again, the disease pressure or the potential for spoilage. I did a hundred, I did a limited release, a hundred percent whole cluster. Mm -hmm. That's how clean the fruit was. And, um, some Psalms have been fooled, thinking that they were for sure it was a product of France from Burgundy. Wow. Um, so that's my leaning. Mm -hmm. And also one of the nice things, although it's sadly I think more people are leaning that way now. Uh, when I was first making my wines, and they don't even know me from Adam, but I would show up at some of the larger houses that were very fond of oak. Big oak, lots of oak. Let's throw oak, big oak at the wine. And uh, that's not my philosophy. Because uh, again, it's a sort of a manipulation. And then Pinot Noir is a subtle, delicate, if it's made right, delicate wine. So if you over oak it, it can go sideways on you. Um, but I used to get their barrels once filled mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for cheap. And it used to be plentiful. And now it's not so plentiful because <laughs> that, that philosophy, I think, is back now. <laughs> you know, the heavy oaking of Pinot Noir. <laughs> um, as has the, there was a trend for people to really do super extractions. And you didn't know if you were getting a Syrah or a Pinot Noir. Which you guys would know all about, right? <laughs> Talk about your business plan a little bit. It's a little different. Our business model, perhaps. How about this better word? Sure. You say you say you say small appointment only. You're kind of off the beaten path here a little bit. So how do you sell your wine? Most of it comes from a private. A lot of it has come from a private wine company tour groups <laughs> and uh, word of mouth. And then I do, I do three public events a year. By God. <laughs> Uh, one day during the Memorial Day weekend, mm -hmm. and then one day the, uh, the Saturday before Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And uh, I also invite other guest winemakers here. So there are probably three other winemakers under the roof. Mm -hmm. And uh, it allows people to make the trek to you know, have a, a variety of mm -hmm. wines to try. And a couple of them admittedly are making Noirs from my grapes. <laughs> They make very wise decisions in buying my fruit. But uh, so that gets the word out a little bit. And I have a club, uh, our, our, I have two clubs. One I'm just really starting to work on. Again, there's two things. I'm a hell of a salesman and I suck at marketing. I really don't enjoy marketing. And my wife gets impatient with me, but she'll help me out periodically. So that, you know, I have done a terrible job at things like if it weren't for I wouldn't be on Facebook I wouldn't be on you know we aren't on Instagram now do you guys know what Instagram is <laughs> what do you do on Instagram other than take photographs and send them to people I mean anyway apparently it's a real outreach program um, 
So I don't do very good job. Mm -hmm. um, I am in some, my wines do get acknowledged because they're in some of the best restaurants in Portland. Mm -hmm. I can say that. And then sometimes what happens, somebody opens my wine and they'll call me and say, hey, I want some more of this. I do like restaurant placements versus bottle shop placements. Because um, it's a food wine. Yeah, and it's a food wine, yeah. right? So that all goes to hand in hand. Um, yeah, so it's been been uh, fits and starts, and um, this summer again, you know, I, I anticipate probably more visitors than in the past. But you know, it's also I've been talking to some of the wine tour guys and. They're saying it's sort of an odd year, and they, you know, they aren't getting quite the numbers they thought. You know, it's been kind of like this for them. So we'll see what the summer brings. Um, I, I do, I'll do dinners here, um, events. Last year I did some croquet events. Anyway, and then our reserve clubs. So the reserve clubs coming in this month, and I try to keep their loyalty. Uh, I throw a big lunch. And then I, we do a big croquet tournament, and the winner walks off with a magnum and try to get them drunk and incentivized, and they stay on my list. <laughs> but the, also, the, the reserve wines have been scoring real well, so I, I haven't, you know, nobody said, hey, you know, yeah, it's enough, you know. I think the wine, the quality of the wines, what sort of keeps them in the, in the, whatever the term is. In your club, at least. In the club, at least, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the area a little bit. Uh, you, you came to the Admiral Carlton area, but pretty small still. So tell me about the changes you've seen kind of is, uh, in your neighborhood. Well, neighborhood's gone to hell. <laughs> uh, but when I first moved here, people thought I was insane. I was. And the, um, there were maybe, I don't know, I'm going to say six vineyards. I don't something in that mm -hmm. range. There was one on this side of the AVA uh, called Residence. It used to have a different name and then there was the Chambers had, a, uh, had to change it. Mm -hmm. And that has now come into the hands of uh, the Shadow Company. Mm -hmm. So that's that two vineyards that way. And then it was myself. And then on the other side of the valley, Brian from Bell, Brian O'Donnell mm -hmm. from Bell Pent had mm -hmm. started to do his plantings when I first moved here. And there was uh, the, was it the Wall family? Mm -hmm. Anyway, there were a few, but, but again, it was very much uh, the outback, backwaters, whatever, <laughs> um, compared to what it is today. You know, now you had some you know, famous winemaker, Tony Soder, seeking this place out and establishing his vineyard here. Yeah. I mean, it has changed a lot. And as I say, now we have Safflanche right next door. I mean, the, it's, uh, it's definitely changed a lot. Um, and this side of the valley has obviously gotten acknowledgement given who's been right next door is the Roy Group. And um, so it's... It's really has changed a, a great deal. Um, there, uh, I should know this, I don't, but in the Yamhill Carlton ABA, there's probably, I bet you there's, I don't know, 20 vineyards? Mm -hmm. I, did, I don't know. Maybe I'm raw off on that. I don't know what it is. I'm a member of our ABA group, I should know. But, <laughs> but it's, it's definitely a lot more acreage. It's been planted since the time I, was here and I was even a little bit late as I told you because I didn't know anything and so I didn't plant until and I had you know there was nobody really encouraging the development of these sites sure. on this side of the AVA um, so I got a little bit of a late start um, by the time I was planting you know I think the trend had begun the area had been sort of identified in, you know, 99, 2000. Sure. You mentioned earlier a little bit about the, the soil in the area, but what else makes this area desirable, special? Well, Carlton's pretty cool. <laughs> Who'd have known? I arrived here and after, with a spoon and a fork in my car, driving all the way from New York City, fishing a long way, of course. Of course. And arrived here really without knowing a soul in Carlton. 
And uh, I remember this day, it was 91 degrees, and, or 95 or something. And there was literally, I decided to call my mom. <laughs> and I said, you know, as I was talking to her on the phone, there was a tumbleweed going down the middle of Carlton. I thought, what have I done? <laughs> it was uh, a little intense. And that day only got better. Uh, I'd seen the home in the wintertime, you know. And there were people living in, although that was frightening because they had, there were no electric ball outlights in the house, so they were running extension cords out of light bulbs. Oh. That was a fire reading to happen. Um, but anyway, in the summertime I arrive here, he's in with a spoon and a fork for tools, and the grass has grown up to the windows. And um, the place was, uh, so there was nothing at that time that was particularly charming about Carlton and or this area <laughs> uh, and or this property. Uh, it was a clearly a run-down farm. It, its heyday was over. Um, this building was nearly collapsing. Where you're sitting, there was two feet of manure. I had to take chainsaws to it just to remove it. <laughs> How's that for the dirtiest job in America? Uh, lots and lots of work. I would just literally take one percentage turn on the dial and there were 50 tasks to do. <laughs> so it was a little bit overwhelming day one uh, when I arrived here and found red water coming out of my pipes and you know and not having a phone back in the day guys we didn't know so. Um, and uh, then I saw tire tracks going through the tall grass, broken bottles and the bricks and stuff. And somebody, back in the day, they used to dump their household goods in dumps. They'd take a backhoe, dig it up, throw it in their beds and whatever it was. And I walk, follow these tracks through and I see this open dump. And I said, that was my welcome to Oregon, Keith. It was nice. And um, being a New Yorker, I went, oh my God, neighbors are using my place as a dump. <laughs> Super fun. Oh my God. Uh, thankfully, there were no tanks in there. Um, but, you know, it just. It was just insane, you know, that so my heart started to go like this, you know, pound, pound, pound. And I said, I sort of dump off some suitcases. You know, I think I'll go visit my friends in Portland. Give this a little time to, to sink in, <laughs> you know, because everything is a disaster. And, uh, and then I go down, back, and I, at this point I'm going, you know, okay, get control of yourself. You should at least say hello to your neighbor. And I go and I pull up and it's, it's a really wasted single wide trailer. And the stairs are all kind of broken in. And I figure at this stage, okay, I'm done. Uh, you know, this is, this is the, um, what's a great book, uh, their canoe trip through the South. The Deliverance? Deliverance. I mean, it was just, and the first thing I see coming up, looking out, is this giant arm on a lazy boy with a tattoo on it. And I said, it's done, I'm finished. This isn't gonna work. But I still knocked on the door. And uh, that, those folks, they were so sweet, and they saved my life, I think, that day. My heart, at least, <laughs> great, went down. Uh, they offered me a phone. They, got out their tractor and mowed down the field around the house and you know they were very you know kind and that was it just brought a little bit of the blood pressure down but it that's when it all began after that day <laughs> and it's still a lot of work <laughs> that's amazing yes yeah. but so Carlton has now become you know the uh, destination little town. Well, I'm very proud of it. Mm -hmm. um, and Ken Wright's had a lot to do with that. I, although I'll chip in, I was the first guy to do Flavors of Carlton. I did it for two years and then somebody far more competent took over. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I tried to get involved with the community early on and uh, did my share. Um, but I stayed small. And Ken's far better businessman. And brought in investors and grew his business and has a great reputation. So, uh, 
So he's helped the town a lot. Mm-hmm. No question. You talked about your involvement in the community. What about involvement in like industry organizations? I, you know, I've, I'm a part of the land use committee, mm-hmm. uh, the o- 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 uh, Oregon um, Wine Growers Association. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sat actually on the Yamhill County Planning Commission for seven years until the Republicans moved me off. Um, so I served there and enjoyed that my time there. Voted twice against the dump. But that, that was a, a good experience. But as far as the in- industry, I'd say that's, a, that's about it. Um, Why did you feel those were important to be a part of? Oh, well, uh, I had had in, at one point, not so much now, uh, uh, just like Jefferson, mm-hmm. had some thoughts of going into politics. But, uh, you know, you got to really have roots and really be wanting to be in the, in the public's domain continuously. So I've kind of backed off on that. But at least I was able to do some public service. Mm-hmm. And um, then... Uh, I've, I'm not sure what's next as far as the civic involvement. Mm-hmm. How have you seen the wine industry change since you became a part of it? Uh, it's getting, obviously, I think everybody's seen the same trends. I'm not mega trends, whatever. Um, it, it goes hand in foot, hand in glove, I should say, with the whole way the industry, the entire liquor industry is going. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, I think you can fact check me on this, but I have heard that as much as, as many as 60 to 70 percent of our all the wine and liquor distribution in the United States of America is going through three companies now. And it is monopolistic as hell. Our antitrust division is gone, as is our EPA, as is every governmental agency I think um, that we have. Um, but there's nothing's getting done. They're private companies. They wield guns, probably. Who knows? I wouldn't want to go up against them. And so the consolidation of distributorship is huge, which impacts. It really kills little guys like because like I could make. Well, I don't have the smoke and mirrors, or the reputation, but I could make a wine. Let's say that scores at 98 points. It wouldn't matter. I've had literally had distributors tell me, you could have the greatest wine in the world and we're not going to be able to move it. Mm-hmm. Um, so unless you have that, just that, like, oh, every, you got to have this person's wine. Um, they want to move tractor trailer loads. So they, the last thing they want is a hand sell, and they run the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just uh, ta- uh, taken out, to give you an example, I was just taken out of Vegas by my distributor there, Breakthrough Beverage, because they had just been purchased by Republic or somebody, you know, and they were huge. And um, the reason, and I had just done a trip there and gotten some great placements and high-end restaurants, and I was called a month later and said, sorry, Dave, uh, basically we're going to have to drop your, your label. And I said, I was just there. We were putting, what are you talking about? And the new game, in that particular market, but that's a a shining example of what's going on, Um, it's the Battle of the Titans. And so you have uh, literally Southern Company coming in saying, we will have 70 to 80% of the bar. That includes liquor and wine. And then they throw crumbs to everybody else. And that's what they do. And then to combat that, because of the power of those distributors, the... the, uh, Casino operators, just there are really only two of them. It's you might see, you know, when you go look. Hey, let's visit Vegas. You get twelve or fifteen different new casinos. It all looks great. Mm-hmm. They're all owned by the same people, and they they're creating giant, like think of Costco type warehousing, so that they can then negotiate, have more power in negotiating with the distributors, which want, of course, to put their product into those casinos. They sell booze like crazy. Well, in that process, uh, they didn't exactly go into detail with me, but apparently you have to be ready to pay to play, as they say. And I, they just knew I wasn't in that position, so they did the dirty work for me and said, sorry, we got to part ways. Mm-hmm. 
And that's kind of the, so hopefully you're learning some of that in, in school. Uh, it's, it's definitely not pretty in, in certain sectors. And uh, so, taking that from the distributor level to the grower level or to the winemaking level, we have multi-billion dollar enterprises now buying land and vineyards here. And they can, part of that, they use that scale, they have the ability, they have their own internal distribution companies, in fact. So they tend to be the ones that are doing the acquisitions right now and consolidating land. And, and uh, I haven't seen anything negative come from it. My neighbor is Kendall Jackson. Um, they're very nice people. Uh, the French, Jadot, they gotta be a couple, I don't know, they gotta be in the billion dollar category, I don't know. They're one of France's biggest negociants. Uh, and they're really wonderful. I got to meet Jacques Lardier, I love him to death. Um, I don't know the, the new crew, but they, they, they're a corporation too. So you're getting much bigger players and um, I guess my only concern is I think that helps our region to some degree because it, it lends credibility, right? Mm -hmm. Now we have a very famous French Burgundy house right here on my ridge when I was having to say this is the best place to go, Greg. Now I don't have to say that anymore. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's my concern I think down the road might be just uh, labor. Mm -hmm. Because they're obviously, if they have vineyards, which they do, they're going to have a little more sway in the marketplace, and with with the you know current lunatic in the office, we are scaring people, and it's getting harder and harder, and then it's even a generational thing. So, I think the there's uh, we are in an antiquated industry that we're, that is still using 19th century methodology to you know to make the raw materials for our product, and uh, I don't know how that bodes for the future. I'm not exactly uh, overwhelmingly optimistic. You know, we have to move towards mechanization, mm -hmm. but unfortunately, we've chosen a grape that requires very gentle treatment and it has thrives in sites that it's hard to get equipment to do the kind of jobs you got to do, like the one they're doing right now. Mm -hmm. They're out there shoot positioning. Mm -hmm. um, and we do that so that the plants don't just lie over on the side, even with catch wires, they'll go crazy on you. And it allows you to have much cleaner fruit, better spray, all that stuff, it's thousands of dollars. And, um, and it's really painful when you drop fruit and you get a bill for $5,000, $6,000, that's nice. <laughs> uh, but labor has gone from maybe, you know, I'm, I may be paying to the high end, but I have a very experienced crew, it's hard. And my crew manager gets us, you know, he gets his percentage for managing the crew. Mm -hmm. But I'm at I'm at eighteen dollars an hour now, mm -hmm. and uh, times sixteen thousand plants, times the human visit. Uh, each plant is somehow touched or visited by another a human being in the course of a growing season between twelve and thirteen times. So you add it up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And then, nonetheless, we're getting pushback on pricing because we're in a little bit of a glut. Uh, a lot of people planted grapes, and, and because of we're not, it's it's a it's a business that also hopefully you're learning this. We have no protection on on the interstate commerce clause, so every state gets to throw as many regulations as they'd like, including taxes on heroin at, slash wine. And uh, so it's, it's, it's hard to move the product. And it's a heavy product to ship, so it's really expensive to ship. So there's a tendency to sell local, and then everybody's local. And then, you know, anyway, and then you have bumper crops for four or five years because people are not, because they're now going into the cheaper, uh, the bulk type of mm -hmm. Pinot Noir making. So they can hang four tons. Good luck if they get a typhoon. But for now, the last three years, it's been, you know, very, uh, um, very much uh, bumper crop. And so that has created some difficult business conditions if you were a grower of high-level Pinot Noir. And I do sell some of my fruit. I don't produce 100% what's like growing out there. 
so that you know so there's trends that are positive and trends that are negative I may have brought out some of the negative trends mm -hmm. but uh, it's there are fortunately Oregon is now not you know I used to have people come up here and I'd say okay who's tried an Oregon Pinot Noir and nobody would raise their hands and now majority of the people raise their hands and that's a good thing and we are on the map and it's still a, a nascent industry by comparison to where <laughs> it's in France uh, so you know I think maybe the big mega trend is still very positive mm -hmm. in terms of consumer growth. Certainly, not everybody's discovered Pinot Noir. We are, uh, but it's um, it's a slow process. Mm -hmm. And then when you're selling higher end Pinot Noirs, you're you're kind of going for a everybody's going for a little bit smaller market. Mm -hmm. So absolutely, yeah. What about your plans for the future, specifically here? Um, I don't know. You know, some dumb money walks along, you never know. <laughs> uh, but this is pretty much my home. So uh, I do need to get out of Dodge starting about November 1st through about the end of March. Uh, I think Oregon's winters are wretched. I've never gotten used to them. Any place that has rained for 20 straight days is inhuman. Not capable of maintaining <laughs> life as we know it. So I am, my wife and I are trying to, you know, it, it's all about, you know, juggling and cash flows and this and that and the other thing. But I definitely would like to be out of here in the winters. And if, and if ultimately that can't work out, then we'll see. Mm -hmm. um, it's... Uh, Right now, I just sort of, you know, stay in the game, and and uh, I do enjoy making really good wine. But um, and there's something about I do need to stay busy, and that's something a vineyard will do is keep you busy, <laughs> even if you're not out there. Like I'm not out there shoot positioning now, but I mean I do all the understory work, I do all the mowing in the vineyard, I do, and I manage the vineyard. I don't have a vineyard manager. So that, along with the peddling of the wine and the making of the wine, and then to having about four other businesses I'm involved with, it's plenty busy. So I don't have a lot of time to think about, gee, what am I doing tomorrow? <laughs> but uh, it's a very nice place to call home from about mid-April through October. And we'll see what happens after that. <laughs> As you look back, uh, your Oregon wine experience, what are you proudest of? My weird croquet parties? No. <laughs> um, well, I guess, I don't know if I'm proud of it. I just, you know, I, I guess I car. If you guys had seen this when I saw it in 1991 coming up the road, I think I've accomplished something. Uh, this carved it out and worked it, and I truly believe it's one of the finest sites in Oregon. Not that you know I'm well known enough to have that be declared officially, but um, people that have come here are impressed with it, and uh, I think I do a decent job as a farmer and do a good job of the land. A member of Live. Um, so, you know, I've done an okay job in stewardship and, um, but I, you know, I think otherwise, you know, it's nice to get the applause periodically when you make a good wine. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know, I'm pretty proud of my wines. They're, again, they're, as a, qualitatively, mm -hmm. they're, again, they average 90 points or better. So mm -hmm. that's not all bad. Not bad at all? Yeah. Uh, you guys have any questions? That's all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I should have asked that I didn't? Anything else we should have no. talked about? Uh, we could have, a third cup of coffee would have had, <laughs> you know, even more. I, I'm just trying to think. I think that's, you know, encapsulates a lot of what, what I have, you know, gone through and been a part of. And um, I have, uh, it's been a, 
It's certainly been an adventure. Uh, hasn't been a great career move. Um, and, I j and I was able to continue to practice law up until this year I took a leave of absence. Mm -hmm. So there are many vineyards and wineries around here I've actually incorporated and set up. But um, no, the, uh, I think that's pr pretty much it. And, you know, welcome, thanks for coming up. And this is our tasting room, should you ever, you know, be in the neighborhood. Um, and then hopefully we'll get a chance now to, are you all 21? <laughs> some, some of us are. All right, see, I'm very diligent on this. Um, but we'll have a chance to try some of these wines you've been hearing about. So, awesome. And thanks for thinking of me. Thank you so much, really yeah. appreciate yeah. this. We'll, okay. we'll let you off the hook there. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.